the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. If you can stop them from looking for other attorneys, you've done 90% of the battle, all right? So obviously, if you want to meet with them, great. Meet with them afterwards, but get them to sign the contract. If they're ready, get them to sign the contract right then. You can get the HIPAA release and all that kind of stuff signed later if you want to, but get that done because I think that's part of getting that sales process closed so that way you can get working on the case. That's a good way of sort of closing that sales process. Run your law firm the right way. way. This is the Maximum Liar Podcast. Maximum Liar Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. You're back on the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. I'm Jim Hacking. And I'm Tyson Mutrix. What's up, Jimmy? I'm in Kansas City, Missouri. I had a naturalization interview this morning and I have an asylum interview this afternoon. So you and I have not had one of our own podcasts without guests for a while. I thought that we could check in on what's going on with both of our practices, talk a little bit about Max Law, and then get into our topic today, which is going to be a good one. I love it. So it's interesting. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I think it'd be really funny since you travel all over the country is if you had on your home screen, like where in the world is Jim? And like yeah. you have like a little bitty tiny Jim on a map and, you know, today it'd be Kansas City, you know, a couple weeks ago you were in San Diego or wherever the hell you were. You were in New York not too long ago. I think it'd be so cool to have a little thing, you know, little bitty Jim all over the world, a little map. That'd be pretty cool. That'd be fun because, you know, usually in our office we have about – 10 or 11 interviews a month. And this month, I counted them out. Yesterday, we have 24 interviews this month. So either something crazy is going on or the USCS is trying to finally move cases. But between the three attorneys and the two that are waiting to see their bar results, we're going to be pretty busy this month. Uh, What's up with you? Things are really busy. Um, We're hiring two new employees. We're hiring a legal case manager. We're hiring a paralegal. We are looking for office space because we're out of space. It's been pretty hectic. So we've got a case review meeting tomorrow where we're going to try and go through all of our cases. I'm not sure we're going to get that done, but things are really, really busy. It's, it's busy is a good thing, but we're trying to make sure we stay ahead of the curve. So what about you? Well, I'm glad you brought up that case review meeting because I was talking to our friend Josh Goldstein on Facebook Messenger over the weekend about these case review meetings that are interminable. And I really want to focus, and this is one of the things we talked to Sean Hemp about, 
I really want to focus this quarter on cutting down on case review meetings and figuring out the best ways to have cases be self-reporting or automated reporting or, you know, these meetings just become interminable and they go on and on forever. And, and this is my my 90-day focus for this quarter is to try to figure out ways to at least get me out of having to go to those meetings, if not eliminating or, or minimizing the meetings altogether. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I feel the same way about this. We had this influx of cases that we didn't really expect to get the number that we got, and we just kind of got behind on some of them. It's one of the, I think this is almost a catch-up meeting, to be honest with you. We don't do a lot of the case management meetings, but I completely agree with you. I, I don't think they should be completely necessary, and I think I think people like John Fisher might completely disagree with that because he's, he's a big fan of meetings, but he's I think he's more of a a fan of the maintenance meetings, if, if, you, if you know what I mean, like the daily meetings, the one weekly meeting at the beginning of the week, the one weekly meeting at the end of the week. I think he's more into those. I'm not sure if he's into the case management meetings, but they can be a huge time suck, these these case management ones. We, I don't try to make it a habit. So this isn't something that we do. I know that some firms, they do like a monthly case management meeting, and that seems to work for them. But I'm with you, though. I'd rather have it where the cases are self-reporting, so you're on top of them as the cases are moving along as opposed to, okay, let's have this big catch-up meeting. And this is the first one we've had to have, but it just it's almost out of necessity at this point because we're just so – we're short-staffed and we're, we're in the process of hiring. We're having, we have all these interviews scheduled, but we just haven't had anybody hired yet. So just we got to do what we got to do at this point. So, How do you account for the big spike in cases for you? It's interesting. So you hear this word synergy, you know, and it's um, it's a word that everyone throws around and it's kind of, I think for the most part, misused. But Chris and I, when we partnered, I think, I think we were viewed separately as good attorneys, as good firms, but we were thought of as, as you know, small firms that couldn't handle big cases. And I don't know this. I have nothing really to support that. But I, I think that that was the view because you know, you get a call every once in a while about a, about a really big case, but you wouldn't get a regular flow of cases, calls about big cases. And I think what it was is that whenever we joined forces, we were perceived as, as having that, that power now to, to take on the big cases. The, and what I mean by that is the bank account, honestly. I, I, that's what I really mean with these injury cases. And some of these bigger, well, actually, not some of the big if you're doing them right, usually the big cases require a big bankroll. And so I think that what it was is that we were just perceived before as not being able to bankroll those cases, and now we can. So I think that has a lot to do with it. So I'll call it synergy. I'm not sure if that's the right word for it. I may be misusing it, but I think the two of us joining forces has really, really changed the perception overall, which is, which is good. So I thought it might be a situation where some lawyer just bulk referred a bunch of cases to you, but it's not that. It's just cases coming in the same way, but just an increase in the quality of cases and the number. Yeah, and, and what part of what makes me think that it's not just clients, you know, referring us cases. It is, you know, like small auto accident cases. It is big firms referring us big cases. So I think that's part of it. So uh, part of it is some of these, and they're in, uh, some of these are other injury firms too. So they know what a big case is, and they're referring them to us. And we've also got that big mission of trying 250 cases in 10 years. And so people know that we're willing to try these cases. And so it's, it, it's a combination of things, but I think the biggest part is just us two joining forces has made a big difference. Do you think most personal injury attorneys get their cases from other attorneys or do you think, like what percentage of cases do you think attorneys 
that are doing high-end PI stuff generate them themselves versus referral? Like what percentage do you think are self-generated? Um, I think for the average attorney, I'd say if we're looking at just PI, the average attorney, are we, are we talking about just big PI or, or PI in general? So there, there's a difference. Yeah, I would say substantive PI. Yeah, not not soft tissue car accidents. And, you know, I'm talking about for people that do, because like John or you guys that are sort of the complicated where, you like you said, you're bankrolling them. I would think most of those cases come from other lawyers. And you're always, of course, happy to get it on your own because you're not going to have that co-counsel fee. I would say 90%. And I, that seems like a crazy number, but it's I think it's true because you're getting them Usually you're getting them from other attorneys. It's really, 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 really rare that you get a big case through mass advertising. And I, I can tell you from experience, because I've worked for one of those those volume firms, the people that are calling those numbers and going to those websites are the ones that are not as injured. And so they're inundating you with these tiny car crash, car crash cases. I mean, I remember whenever I was at that other firm, we were turning down probably 90% of the phone calls. I mean, it was a, a huge number of cases that came through, and 90% of them, we said, this is not a case. It's quite different now with my practice now. The, the number of cases that we take uh, compared to the number of calls we get is much different. I mean, we take a lot more of the cases from the calls because they're usually qualified. They're usually qualified by some attorney in some way because like, oh, they're able to recognize, hey, this is probably a case. Now, do we get the junk ones too? Occasionally, yes, but it's not to the same same extreme. I mean, you get a whole, with the volume practices, and I'm sure there's PI attorneys that are listening to this that can vouch for that. But you get a lot of bad calls, a ton of bad calls at volume practices, which is it's part of it. It's, it's, it's part of the the mass advertising. If you mass advertise, you're going to get a bunch of those calls and a bunch of junk calls, no matter what. So no, I, the for the big PI though, you're getting the vast majority of them through through referrals, usually from for referrals from other attorneys. I know you've probably spent a lot of time thinking about this, and we've obviously talked about it on the show before with prior guests, but I think that might make for an interesting episode. Try to try to figure out, you know, if the majority of our cases are coming from other attorneys, is there a way that we could sort of sift and sort out the the bad cases or the non-cases without as much human interaction in a way that sets us up for more self-generation cases? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. I guess the problem with that is that there is there are some cases that we've identified that were turned away by other firms that were the liability was far, far more difficult that if you were to create that criteria, it probably would have been filtered out at the beginning. And I think that so you have to be sort of be careful. I mean, I'll give you an example that we settled one for one point two five million a few months ago and most firms would not have taken that case. I think even most big firms wouldn't have taken the case because the liability was very, if, if you were to look at it on the surface at the very, very beginning, you'd think, ah, I don't think so. But if you, you have to sort of peel back the, the initial layers to, to figure out, hey, is this the case? And so I, I think if you were to have some strict criteria, you're going to lose out on a lot of the bigger cases. All right. Well, we should get to work on this week's topic, I believe. Yeah, we've already gotten pretty deep into this, and we're not even—we haven't gotten to the topic. So let's. Uh, do you want to talk about the conference, or do you want to save that for another day? Oh yeah, we can talk about the conference. I mean, we haven't set the date yet, but we're we're thinking of going ahead and setting it without knowing the cardinal date. I think the cardinal game might move out of this year's conference if there's a way we can work it in if the schedule works out that way. But we really want to start 
talking about the conference, getting things set. I think we're going to be going to a new venue, a bigger venue. We're expecting more people. And I also think we're going to put out a call for submissions. So we're going to invite people who've either been to the conference or spoken at the conference or who want to come to the conference and speak at the conference to pitch us ideas on what they talk about. Everyone's going to have about 45 minutes for each presentation. And we're going to take applications. It'll be a short online application process to let people sort of apply to present. And I think that'll help. And we'll still pick people that we want to have on the stage with us. But I think that opening it up to people to let them, you know, submit topics will help us increase things that we might not necessarily have talk and thought about and give us some interesting new topics. Yeah, it's we're expecting, I mean, not expecting, we're, our goal I'm going to go ahead and say what our goal is. We want to get 250, 250, which is a substantial increase from last year. But I think after talking to the people that went last year, they really got a lot of benefit from it. We're going to have to raise the price a little bit just because we've got to pay for the venues. We didn't have to pay for the venue last year because we worked out a deal with SLU as an advertising partner or sponsor. So that was that was kind of part of the deal, which worked out really nicely for us. But we're going to have to pay for space. And so I sort of want to explain the, the reasoning for possibly scratching the Cardinals games, just because we feel like there will be an increase. The venue can only hold so much if we were to run a suite or even two suites. And so some of the people that didn't get to, didn't get to go to the Cardinals game sort of missed out on a lot of the conversation and the experience. And so we don't want that to happen next year. And so we want to have sort of a built-out experience from start to finish. We're adding it to making it two days instead of a day and a half. So um, you're going to get some more value out of that. And then it's going to extend into the night. We've got some really good ideas. I think we've got to sort of put all the pieces together. Kent's already been looking at the venues and I think there's some really good options. And so I think it's going to be a different experience than last year. I think it will be ultimately a better experience. It's going to be pretty cool. And I loved last year. I thought last year was amazing. And I think a lot of the listeners did too, the people that attended. So it's going to be a lot of fun. We've got, I know people are sort of begging us for that date. We've got to get that date hammered out. We're trying to figure it out. But um, people have suggestions on dates. Feel free to fire it away at us. And we'll try and, I wouldn't say we'll try and accommodate, but we're, we'll try and find a date that works because something that I don't know if people, most people realize is we've got to sort of, figure out the dates that other conferences are having their conference so we don't have it on the same date and just trying to coordinate a lot of things when it comes to, you know, graduation weekends and a lot of other weekends that we had really going into last year thought about. And so we're trying to make sure we don't fall on one of those weekends because I think last year, Jimmy, we were on a graduation weekend and so a lot of people weren't able to come. So, but um, anyways, more to come about the conference. So let's, let's get going. Yeah, I'm excited about the conference, and one of the big pieces of feedback we got is that everyone felt, I think, that things were a little bit too compressed. I think they really liked the interaction at the Thaxton and at the Cardinal game. I think opening up the nighttime stuff to everybody will be beneficial. I think everyone was looking for a little bit more one-on-one interaction, a little more breaks in between. I think our vendors would like a little bit more foot traffic, so we're excited. It's going to be great. I'm, I'm already working on my presentation. I think I know what I'm going to talk about, so... Uh, let's let's roll into today's topic, which is the sales prevention department. Now, this is a phrase I'd love to throw at my wife, who I work with, because every now and then she has a client who's sitting in front of her, and for whatever reason, she decides to tell them to come back and sign the contract and pay later. So I always tease her about being the chairwoman of the sales prevention department. But the phrase comes from Dan Kennedy, and I heard him say it in a podcast once about just sort of the things that people do to prevent sales. And so sometimes I'll be at a restaurant or I'll be at a store and somebody will 
a salesperson to do something dumb and I'll go, oh, they must be part of the sales prevention department. So what we wanted to do was to come up with a list of our top 10 things that we think Tyson and I about ways lawyers or law firms um, prevent the closing of sales. And so we're going to get right into it. And the first one comes from me and it's about not having a live and empathetic person answer the phone. So I think we've talked about this before on the show and we've talked about it at the conference that really getting someone who's good at answering the phone and empathetic and who's not just trying to click boxes or fill out a form or take down someone's phone number rushing onto the next call. I think that any investment that you make in your phone intake, uh, whether it's hiring an outside company like Ruby or Smith AI or Sentex, that when you do things like that and you get people who can handle a number of calls at the same time and can do so well, and get down the important contact information to retain all the contact information, that all that money is very well spent and it's always going to come back to support you. You might view it as an expense, but really it is an investment. If if you spend, say, $2,000 a month on phones, and whether that's for a person or for a service or $3,000, you know, that's money that hopefully is going to come back to you at least two times over, if not 10 times over. So I just can't underestimate the or understate the value of having someone who knows how to talk to clients about their problems and sympathize with them because that's what those callers initially want. I 95% agree with you. Probably 98% agree with you. Okay. I want to make sure that that 2% is a very, very small percentage. So 98% agree with you. I don't really have any pushback, but only, only that 2%, if you are more of a referral based practice, I think it's less necessary to have a live empathetic person on the other side. I know it's, it's definitely important. So I don't want to, I don't want to overstress my point, but I do want to say that if you do have a referral based practice, primarily from other attorneys, you've got a little bit of leeway there where they will, I guess, um, you get some wiggle room. Okay. So it's not as important, but it's definitely as important. And if you are a volume practice, it is highly important to have a live person answering the phone and in a very, very cheery voice. I think it's extremely important. But yours is actually a good segue into my first one. So number two is not returning calls or taking too long to call the lead. So I sort of put those two together. So if you do get a call to your office and it goes to voicemail, it's the middle of the night and you don't have an answering service, not returning them immediately in the morning is probably going to lose you the case. The other part of it is taking too long to call those web leads. So when you get those leads, if I get one in my email, what I'll try to do, and if it's in the middle of the night, I'll, and it, let's say I see it, I will try to shoot them an email really quick saying, hey, I'll call you in the morning, and then calling in the morning. It's extremely important because otherwise, if you take too long to call those leads, and I bet, Jimmy, you get a bunch through yours because you get them through all, from all over the world, calling those people, I mean, that's a big task, but you have to sort of filter in, the, you know, filter through the good cases and the bad cases, but calling those good cases right away, otherwise you're going to lose them. When I went to the last mastermind with John Fisher at Seth Price's office, Seth told me a story about how he had gotten a referral for his father, who's an attorney, and he'd called his father in New York or and sent the referral on, and and Seth checked back on like Tuesday, and his father had not gotten the chance to call the person back, and of course, when the firm called back on that Tuesday, the person had already moved on. So, I think that that was a valuable lesson for me. It's something that sort of, when I think about that, because when you think about all the money that you spend to get the phone to ring, to not maximize what happens after when the phone rings, it's just wasted money. And it's just like throwing cash down 
the garbage chute. So, uh, yeah, this one stuck out for me. I want to add something to that, though. I've got a good story. So a couple weeks ago, I got a call on a really good case. Uh, I mean, in the last really good cases, I'm not talking like a multi-million dollar case. I'm talking about a couple hundred thousand dollar case, though. So pretty good fees to the firm. And I, uh, the guy sat down with me and he had just signed the contract and he had a list of, he had three attorneys on an envelope that he had written down. And, uh, I said, well, what's that? He said, Oh, these are, uh, I talked to such and such and they gave me three names and here's the three names. And he said, uh, this person, I, he said, I, you were actually the third person I called. This person didn't call me back. This person said they would call me tomorrow. And then you're the first person to meet with me. So it was, nice. <laughs> it was pretty nice. funny. So it was, it's it's one of the things where, and I will tell you, the second person on that list is one of my really really good friends. And I I told him afterwards, hey man, you got to you got to start calling your clients a lot faster than that <laughs> because that, that this is what happens. And so he's like, oh, I get it. So, anyways, go on to your next one. So number three is is having a slow sales process, and I learned this lesson. So Kelsey Bratcher and I automated our attorney client agreement process. So before someone would come in meet with one of the attorneys, they'd say they wanted to hire us. The attorney would say, okay, I'm going to prepare a contract. I'll email it to you in a few days. So they would tell Jim, tell me that the contract needed to be prepared. I would prepare the contract. I'd print it out. I'd scan it in. I'd email it to the client. And then they would sort of send it to us when they felt like it. And now we've automated it so that they can sign it right there electronically in the office, or they can sign it electronically at their house when they do decide to hire us. And then there's a payment automation that happens right after that. So compressing down that process between when someone says, yeah, I want to hire you and when they actually hire you, because they never love you as much as they do on the day that they sign you. So that's when you want to really strike while the iron is hot. And, and anything you can do to condense that process is really going to help boost sales and shut down the sales prevention department. E-contracts, man. If you're not using e-contracts, if you can use it in your state, which in Missouri and Illinois you can, if you're not doing that, you need to start doing it right away if you can, because if you can stop them from looking for other attorneys, you've done 90% of the battle, all right? So obviously, if you want to meet with them, great. Meet with them afterwards, but get them to sign the contract. If they're ready, get them to sign the contract right then. You can get the HIPAA release and all that kind of stuff signed later if you want to, but get that done because I think that's part of getting that sales process closed so that way you can get working on the case. And that's that's one way that we sell it over the phone when it comes to getting them to sign the e-contract. Say, hey, listen, you know, we can meet in person or we, you know, we can do we can do most of this over the phone and we can meet later. I'm gonna leave the leave it up to you. But if you sign right now, what we can do is I can get started on the case right away. But uh, and I say, you know, Missouri Bar doesn't let me on a contingency fee agreement work on your case until it's under contract. And so I can start getting in touch with the insurance company and requesting medical records right now if you sign the contract. And that usually works. And then we usually meet at, uh, later on down the road. But it's a good way of sort of closing that sales process. All right. So number four is mine. And it's being too salesy, a.k.a. too much whiskers. We've talked about cheese and whiskers before. And you have to really sort of, when you're meeting with these clients, I think it's really important when you're on the phone is not selling yourself too much. I think they can almost sort of smell that whenever they're on the phone with you because they're used to being sold all the time. And I think trying to sell yourself or your firm way too much, red flags are going to start popping up and they're 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 going to start saying, eh, I don't I don't know. I want to talk to other people. Maybe I need to talk to my I need to talk to my spouse, whatever it may be. I need to talk to my friends. So I think if you're being too salesy over the phone, 
or even in any of your advertising, I think it could really hurt hurt you. For sure. I think lawyers, I mean, when I go out of town, we drove up to Chicago to see Imani's mom and the billboard after billboard, it's just so passe and so overdone, the billboards and the messaging and the salesness. And, you know, there, there's some lawyers who act like we're a profession and that we should be, you know, professional. And then there's others who just go way off the deep end and, and just sort of over the top stuff. And so I think that, you know, being balanced and being informative and, and certainly you can tout your own horn, but you don't have to do it in a way that sounds like a used car salesman. For sure. All right, buddy. What's number five? Number five is brand and generic marketing. So, you know, that sort of segues right into what we were just talking about. But I think that so many lawyers and not necessarily our listeners, but maybe some of our newer listeners get trapped into these cookie cutter ways of doing marketing that everybody else does them. But because everybody else has a billboard, they need to have a billboard. Or because everyone has a yellow page ad or a, a website, that there, there's not much out there that's unique or um, content-driven. They're not, they're not sort of educating the clients or helping them solve a problem. It's all about me, 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 so many years of service. You know, we've been doing this for so long. We're the experts. We'll fight for you. We care about you. These kinds of marketing messages are sort of way overdone and do nothing to help you distinguish yourself. And so, you know, good marketing should be about getting the clients to raise their hand and letting them know that, letting you know that they're interested in what you have to offer. And so I think that too many times lawyers and marketing people that try to help lawyers just do the same thing as everybody else. And there's not much individuality in, baked into their marketing. That's such a good one. It's, it's such a basic one. You know, it, maybe this one should have been number one, you know, but it really is true. You know, it, it comes down to niching down in, in that one practice area, advertising that one practice area at a time. For those of you that have not listened to all of our podcasts, we talked early on about I Love Marketing. Go back, and I don't know what Jimmy, if it's their episode number six or whatever it is where they talk about the just basically the sales process and about picking that one practice area or that one topic to advertise for. It's a really good one. But look up look up I Love Marketing and listen to their first 10 or 15 episodes. They're really good. All right, number six. And Josh, this is a pet peeve for me. And it's it may not seem like it has to do with sales, but it will whenever I explain it. So not having the knowledge base for the types of cases you're advertising for. So, and here's what I'm talking about. You, let's say you do pay-per-click advertising, or I don't know, you put up a billboard, something like that. And we see this in St. Louis all the time where someone gets a big pot of money from something and then they start throwing up billboards and they start getting injury cases, right? Well, what happens is, is that they start taking on all these PI cases. And I'm talking about PI specifically for me right now, but they, people do with every practice area. But they take on these cases and what happens is they, they sit in their drawer for six to nine months and nothing gets done on them because they don't know what they're doing. And then they get fired on the case and the case goes to someone else. So I see these people all the time saying, oh, I want to get into personal injury. I want to get into personal injury. Well, if you get into personal injury, you have the knowledge base because there's, this is a two part. You know, one is you're going to get fired on later on down the ropes. You don't know what you're doing. So you're just letting the, the file sit in your drawer. The other part of it is, is that when you're talking to a client, you better hope that they don't sit with someone that is knowledgeable because they're a potential client. So if they sit with me and then sit with you, they're going to know it. There's going to be a noticeable difference between the two because I'm going to have a knowledge base for it. You're not. And so you're probably going to lose that client. So if you 
start advertising for cases, know what you're talking about before you start taking them on because otherwise it's going to be a disservice to your firm and it's going to be a disservice to your clients. So back when I was still doing all kinds of different stuff before I started to niche down, I had someone sitting across from me who whose father had gotten run over by a big semi truck. And I tried to sign up the case myself and I should have sent it to John Simon or to Gary Berger and I didn't. And of course he didn't hire me. And so I thought when I saw this in your notes that putting aside, you know, of course the ethical obligations of being able to know how to do the case. And like you say, the ability to handle the case and not just stick it in the drawer until you get fired. I think you're talking about the actual sitting across from the client. So I had an interesting take on that. So I, last week or two weeks ago, I met with uh, a doctor who's here on a J-1 visa and getting a green card for doctors had their own special set of rules. And we've all had times where we met with clients and we thought we could sort of talk our way through it or sort of show that we know what we're talking about. Well, I just flat out said to him, you know, even within immigration, which is its own specialty, that there's there are immigration lawyers who specialize in this. I'm just going to refer you to her. I refunded his consult fee. I got her on the phone. I set up the consult for them. And I was happy to do it just because I'd much rather stay in my lane, do the things that I'm really good at. And and from a marketing standpoint, from an ethical standpoint, and from a, a future headache standpoint, nobody wants to have those files that sit in the drawer. And so for all those reasons, I was glad to send him on his merry way to someone who's really going to be able to help him. And really, that's what it should be about is, you know, helping this person that's calling you. It's, I mean, if you know you don't, you, if you don't have what it takes, you're better off just to sign up the case if you want. If you want to take the case, sign it up and refer it out. That way you get paid on it. And that way, you know, the client gets helped as well. So, all right, Jimmy, take us to number seven. So number seven is the lack of follow-up. So, so many people want to just focus on that time period to get the person to call. And then they try to push them to see if they're going to hire them. And then if they don't, they just move on and they just consider that to be a dead lead. And, you know, we've talked many times on this show, and this is probably the thing I, I harp on the most, is that lawyers do a really poor job of follow-up, um, me included, that I, we're really getting better at follow-up. We're making sure that we capture all the right contact information at the beginning. And now we're, we're targeting people based on the topic area that they're interested in. And you really, it's, it doesn't have to be that sophisticated, but you have to be capturing all of their information. And you have to be contacting them on a regular or semi-regular basis so that just because they didn't hire you immediately doesn't mean that they've hired someone. And as our friend Gary Falkowitz said when he came on the show, you've got to keep on them until they either hire you or tell you that they've hired somebody else and they don't need your services. So a lack of follow-up after an initial phone call is key. And we obviously talk a lot about automation on this podcast, about automating a lot of that stuff. And there's a ton of actually free services out there. There are ones you pay for like Infusionsoft, but there's ways of actually doing that. Another way is just putting a calendar item when you're on the phone with the person or whenever you get a message, you know, just put a calendar for two days to follow up or whatever, whatever timeline you want to put on it. So um, that's a good way of actually uh, reminding yourself to follow up. All right. So Number eight for me is hiding the ball or over-promising. And another way of saying this is just being disingenuous. So this is very similar to my number six when it comes to just when you're talking to the client, they're going to know if you're not telling them something or they're going to know if you're over-promising if they've talked to their attorneys or if you're hiding the ball or over-promising and they find out later they're going to fire you. So this is a good way of getting fired. An easy example of this is if you try to hide something in your contract 
about um, your either your fees, your fee structure, your percentages, whatever it may be, expenses. Explain all that to them. Being open, being uh, radically expressing radical candor to them, just being overly uh, honest with them. I think it's really really important. Go go through the contract with them, explain it all to them, so they have a good understanding as to how the case is going to progress, what their obligations are, what your obligations are. I think that's all really, really important in the process so that later on down the road, there's not a miscommunication where you get fired, where you get fired. I really love your last two points, this one and the next one. I, if anything, I over explain and I talk to people seriously about how hard their cases are. I mean, I think sometimes people want to go see a lawyer and they want, they think that you need that you can wave a magic wand and make their problems go away. And I, I try to be much more realistic with people. I try to downplay their expectations, not oversell the expectations. And I think when I think people are surprised by that and they're sort of like, well, no one really explained it to me that way before. And, you know, I'll tell someone, I'll, I'll give percentage chances. I'll say, I think you have a 20% chance of winning or a 30%. And they'll have lawyers who've promised them the moon. And I think that that definitely builds credibility. It also if you do succeed in helping them, then you're the hero because you've overcome these hard odds. I don't, you know, I say it like I see it. I, I don't overemphasize or de-emphasize how hard it is. I just play it straight and then let the chips fall where they may. And if they want to hire me, they hire me. If they don't want to hire me, they don't hire me. Yeah, and, I, and so it's funny. I, I, I get, and any, any of the PI attorneys on here will really understand what I'm talking about. You get the question all the time, you know, well, what's my case worth? And I'll never answer it. I say, you know what? I'm never going to answer that for you. Or uh, actually, that's not what I say. I say, I will not answer that for you at this time. I said, at some point, I'll give you a range as to what I think the case is worth when we're closer, closer to settling. But it's like me trying to diagnose you as a doctor without seeing any of your any of your diagnostic reports. And they usually get that because what happens is that some of these attorneys, they will promise the moon. And because they think that's what's going to get them the case, and I'll just say, you know, respectfully, you know, such and such may have said this, but it's hard for any attorneys to tell you what the case is worth because we haven't seen anything. And so the clients are like, oh, I get that. You know, how are they able to actually tell me a number when they don't really haven't really seen anything? And so if you're over promising, if you're telling these clients numbers at the beginning, you're making a big mistake. And Jimmy, that's kind of what you're talking about, you know, chances of winning is I guess if you're going to give those percentages guess low because if you guess high guess what you're you're going to be looking forward to at the end of the case maybe a bar complaint because or or a bad review because they're going to say well you told me at the beginning of the case you know 20 or 50 percent but you know we didn't win this case or let's say you told me 80 percent and we didn't win this case well did you screw something up i mean did is there something you did wrong in the case you know and you'll right. never be able to meet those expectations so it's a, it is a is a recipe for disaster if you oversell but, all right, so uh, number nine, Jimmy, too hard to refer. So this is an old whipping boy of mine that I'm going to talk about a lot on this podcast, and that is that when people aren't sure as to what you do, what services you provide, and I'm talking about other lawyers or other people in your area, who, like if nurses or tow truck drivers or whoever that might you know, be good referral partners for you, if, they, if they're not crystal clear on what it is that you do, then it's going to be really hard for them to refer you. And remember, people don't make referrals to help you. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'm going to refer a case to Tyson Mutrix today. People refer cases because it makes them look good. It makes them look like they have the connection. It looks like they're the people that are helpful. And so if it's too hard for you to be referred, if, if, if you know your content information is not clear, if your practice area isn't clear, if you're not crystal clear on what it is that you do, 
as a lawyer, then the people around you who might refer you things, they're not going to be crystal clear. And that leads to fuzzy results, which means no referrals. I love it. It's it's funny. So I clearly was not doing a very good job with a friend of the family who had sent Amy a message. Amy's my wife, sent her a message the other day saying, hey, what kind of what kind of work does Tyson do? And she had to tell him. She and so she's like, well, you know, if it's another type of case, give Tyson a call because he can he can refer to someone that's good. But it's it's like, you know what? It's a good reminder. I need to make sure that people know what I do on a regular basis because one, they're going to forget, or maybe my message is just not clear enough. So I got to make sure I clarify my message. So I think that's really, really important. All right. So the last one, Jimmy, this one is, I think, really, really important for the young attorneys, the ones just starting out or the ones that are maybe not doing so hot right now and you get a big case coming in. You cannot be afraid of walking away from the table. I think that people can smell fear. They know when you're nervous. They know when you're desperate. They know when you really, really need this case. And I think that when you're walking into that room with that potential client, you have to be willing to walk away from the table. Because something that if, if you're afraid to walk away from the table, they're going to try and get your rights down. So if you if you take cash for your cases, if you have a flat fee or if you have an hourly rate, they're going to try and work you down. I think you have to know what your rates are. You have to know what your fees are and stick to them. I mean, I, I remember one, Jimmy, you referred to me a couple years ago, and uh, he's from another country. I can't remember which one it was, but he's used to negotiating. Okay, he's negotiating. And I remember I sat down with him, and he said, and, and Marwan was there. He was negotiating with me, trying to get my fee down, and I just I just wouldn't budge. And then finally, he eventually said, okay. And he shook my hand, and we, we had a deal. It was just kind of funny. But like you, you have to stick to your guns because they're going to know it. They're going to know. They're going to sense it. When I used to do criminal defense cases, and I, I'd have a big one come into my office, I, I remember early on, I was afraid to walk away from the table, so I was willing to budge. And they sensed that, and so they took advantage of it. I think it's important that you don't fall into that trap because you're going to leave a lot of money on the table if you do that. Yeah. And, you know, I deal with immigrants every day and immigrants love to haggle, but it really seems like over the last couple of years, just by being completely firm and never haggling, never giving anyone a deal, then people come to me knowing that I don't haggle. And I, I haven't really, it probably happens about once every three weeks. It happens so infrequently now that I'm surprised when people do it and I have to remember my lines, you know, my line is, you know, my wife works right down the hall. If I come home and tell her that I took less on a case, then she's going to brain me and so i i just i can't haggle I, i'm not officially available or able to haggle and so that just sort of cuts down on a lot of that stuff and you know the one thing i always say to clients is you know if if i'm willing to fold with you on what your request for the fee is how do you expect me to advocate for you when we're dealing with the immigration service you know if i'm if i'm not confident enough in standing up for myself and what i think then how in the hell am i ever going to be able to do that for you he sure reminded me something. I was haggling over a, uh, I bought a motorcycle recently and I, I was haggling with the salesperson about the, uh, about the motorcycle. And I made a comment, something like he, at this point we were texting back and forth. It was kind of, it was kind of a funny negotiation. And he's like, like, you know, I'm just going to, my wife's not going to be very happy about that number. And he said, uh, he said, well, if I do such and such, then, then uh, my wife's not going to be happy about that number either. So it's what, you can sort of use their arguments against you if that's part of the problem. You know, if they come and say, well, you know, my spouse, just they really want me to, to do this for $3,000. And you, you say, you know what? Well, my wife, 
she really wants me to do it for $3,500. You know, you can kind of have some fun with it too. You know, you don't have to be overly stiff about your negotiations. But all right, Jimmy, we've gone a really long time. That's the longest one we've had in a long time. So let's wrap it up. Before we get to our tips and hack of the week, I do want to remind everyone to go to the Facebook group. Um, it's growing every single day, literally every day. People are asking to join. Just so you know, please don't ask marketers to come to the group. We're trying to limit it down to just attorneys. Previously, some marketers had gotten in, and um, we're, we're good with the ones that are in there. They don't they don't spam everyone. That's what we're trying to keep spam out of it. We're trying to make the, keep this more of a you know, sort of a legal thing, um, legal questions, legal topics, and, and keep the spam out of it. So, but uh, join us there, and then also if you don't mind going to iTunes or wherever you podcast and give us a five star review, we would really appreciate it. Uh, Jimmy, what is your hack of the week? So my hack of the week is no external information until 11 a.m. What do I mean by that? Is that the last couple of weeks I've been doing everything I can to not have any external information come into my brain until 11 o'clock. So I'm not checking email. I'm not checking social. I am journaling. I'm meditating. I'm reflecting. And I'm planning. I'm doing sort of the entrepreneur work that only I can do at the firm as opposed to jumping in first thing in the morning, grabbing my phone, looking at other people's crisis. And, you know, you and I have that, or I used to have that, I don't check email except at 11 and four. And that was never really true. I, I just did it sort of as a shield to have to respond to things. But now actually stepping back and not checking things until 11, I feel a lot more balanced in the morning. I get a lot more done. I'm able to be on the offense as opposed to the defense. And we're going to have our firm retreat next week, and that's going to be the whole theme of my presentation at our firm retreat, which is being on offense instead of defense. And for me, the best way to do that is to dictate what I'm doing in the morning before the world tries to take over my agenda. I love it. I've actually gone to the opposite extreme, Jimmy. Well, I, like last Friday, I didn't check my email until I was leaving the office. So I, I say that I check it at those times, but I really don't even check it at the early time. I just wait until the very last minute because I hate checking my email. So but that's that's a good one. So my tip of the week actually has to do, I was, my mother-in-law stopped by our house yesterday and one of their family members had passed away last week. And so we were sort of talking about that, you know, and, you know, he had made this comment about how he just wasn't ready to go. And and then he like died like three hours later and just like how tragic, you know, that was. And then she says, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'd want to know that I was going to die, you know, and I'm like, I'm like, I was kind of thinking like, you know, I I think I kind of would that way I can say goodbye to everybody. She's like, you know what? You should talk to every person as if you're never going to see them again. I was like, you know what? That is such a true statement. So my tip of the week is when you're talking to everyone, talk to each person, talk to them as if you're never going to talk to them again. Okay. So treat them with respect, be nice to them. Don't be a jerk. So that is my tip of the week, Jimmy. That was a great episode, Tyson. Glad we did that one. Really good. I think it was a little long, but hopefully people don't mind too much. We had a little bit extra information in there. So, All right, Jimmy. Enjoy your uh, day in Kansas City, and we'll uh, see you soon. Bye-bye. See you, bud. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your host and to access more content, go to MaximumLawyer.com. Have a great week and catch you next time.